Good morning. If you could erase every single painful memory from your mind, would you do it? Uh, This was the question that a young couple had been confronted with. They were trying to figure out this new relationship. They were wanting to forget about all the bad relationships. And they only saw one way that they could do that. And that was by erasing bad memories from their minds. So they turned to a company called Lacuna to do that. This is actually part of a movie called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And in that movie, there was a fictitious company called Lacuna, and they had a commercial in that movie. And it went something like this. It it starts with a doctor in a white lab coat. He's got a stethoscope hanging from his neck. And he looks into the camera and he says, Remember the Alamo. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure, erasure of troubling memories. So then they show computer images of brain scans, and they show uh, bright green graphic words on the screen, revolutionary patented eternal sunshine procedure. And they have a middle-aged a woman there with this giant ring over her head, and she's getting her painful memories erased. Then there's another woman with her head below the same machine, and she has this happy look on her face. And they go on to say, Our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of powerful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you never imagined possible. The doctor says, Don't forget With Lacuna, you can forget. Now, I can't help but think that for many of us, we would at least entertain that possibility. I mean, I look about back in my own life and I think, man, I, you know, there's some, some at least some painful teenage awkward moments, frankly, that I would just as soon never happened. Trying to make some girl laugh or something that would it was just just bad. But then there's much more grievous things, right? I mean, there's things that were done to you, perhaps, or said to you that, frankly, you wish would have never happened. (coughs) Things that we've said that still continue to haunt us. Those are the kind of memories, honestly, that I would just like to see disappear. I'm guessing that all of us came in here with something along those lines. And if you were going to be honest... Today, you just may jump at the opportunity to have Lacuna come and erase your painful memories. Now, on this subject of pain and suffering, there's lots of different kinds of suffering, right? There's physical suffering. And you may be here and you may be in physical pain this morning. But there's also uh, mental and emotional suffering. And I found this quote from C.S. Lewis. By the way, this is from a book called The Problem of Pain. And if you've never read The Problem of of pain by C.S. Lewis, you really should put that on your shelf. But this is a quote. C.S. Lewis talking about mental pain. He says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. I've had at least two conversations in the past three months where somebody told me 
You know, I went to the doctor, and I was sure hoping that they would just do an x-ray and a scan and find some tumor or something, because this mental anguish, this depression I'm in, I just don't know how much longer I can take it. This is a kind of suffering that many people go through, and it leads me to this question. How do Christians endure their present suffering? How do Christians endure their present suffering? Because, see, oftentimes with a Christian, they don't anticipate suffering or pain in their lives. Joy, right? Felicity, good times, happiness. Isn't that what the Christian life promises in our time here on earth? If that's true, it can almost cause like a double depression in the life of the Christian. So how do we enjoy this, I'm, I'm sorry, not enjoy, endure, how do we endure this pain that even though we have Christ, we still find sadness, we still find hurt, and we still find suffering? That's the, what I want to talk about today. The passage we're going to look at is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in, subject, in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You may be seated. So we're jumping back to a series that I actually began uh, right there, uh, or actually ended right at the beginning of December, this series on Hebrews. And there's this theme in the book of Hebrews, don't stop believing. There's a strong call for the recipients of this letter uh, that they would persevere in the faith. They were encountering hard times. As a matter of fact, as the book continues, it will crescendo uh, in chapter 11, and we see this long list of how people have been tortured for the faith. So we're going to pick back up today, and we're going to keep going through this book. If you recall, and I'd be impressed if you recalled this, way back at the beginning of December, we talked about the danger of drifting, how easy it is for Christians to start drifting away from the practice and the faith. And in chapter 1 of Hebrews, there's a uh, argument given for why Christ is superior to angels, which actually makes today's text a little confusing, but we'll talk about that. But this morning, we're going, to be, we're going to be focused on this issue of suffering in the Christian life, the hurt that comes with it. And as I address that topic that I just raised, I want to approach it this way. First, we'll see that all things have, all things have I should say, been submitted to Christ. All things have been submitted to Christ. 
Now, that alone should raise some issues in your mind. But then we'll talk about what does it mean to be living between the already and the not yet. It's fascinating. Two times this morning I've already heard that theme approached. John Sakingam practically preached my sermon this morning. He didn't know it, but he just about preached my sermon this morning. Then finally, I want to talk about, well, how do Christians endure their present suffering? Just practically speaking, how do we endure our present suffering? So first, I want to talk about um, what we see there uh, at, at verse 5 and then to the beginning of verse 8. And notice how it begins with this sentence about angels. This is chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, what, what's, what's that all about? Well, to the ancient Jew, there was a belief that angels had basically been governing lands. This goes back to Hebrew chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, that God partitioned out the countries based on the angels he was going to have lead those countries. You see that again in the book of Daniel. It talks about uh, one angel having to do battle with the prince of Persia in order for him to get to Daniel. So that was a commonly held belief that angels were sort of ruling nations. They were governing nations. Sometimes they were good angels. Sometimes they were bad angels or demons. So verse 5 is telling us that they will no longer have governing authority in the world to come. That that's going to cease. And then we get to verse 6. And there's a quotation here that's from a portion of Psalm chapter 8. This question, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now, the psalmist here is proclaiming how wondrous it is that God pays attention to man, that he loves him so dearly, that even though man is, is pretty low on the totem pole, as a matter of fact, infinitely lower than God himself, who is he that, that God would pay attention to him? And your Bible probably has that quotation offset a bit because it's, it's a psalm, it's poetic, it's a quotation, again, from the Old Testament. And then we get to uh, verses 7 and 8. And it says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, get into the shoes of the Old Testament reader for just a moment. Because that reader would have read that part of Psalm chapter 8 and thought, Okay, we know what he's talking about here. This is a reference back to... Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And there God says that everything will be under the dominion of man, that God is setting man up to rule the world. And uh, that all got screwed up when man fell and sin came into the world. The divine intention was, was messed with, not unbeknownst to God. He knew it was going to happen. And at the same time, it makes it no less glorious that man was given that role, even though it was messed up by sin. Now, for the writer of Hebrews, Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, fulfilled the job that man screwed up. And he's taking this language from Psalms 8 to emphasize the role that Jesus played. This psalm he's taking pertains to Christ. He'll make that very explicit uh, in the next set of verses. 
Now, is he saying then that Jesus is lower than angels? I mean, he just got through arguing in the previous chapter that Jesus was superior to angels. So now, like, what's going on with this, this verse? Now, notice it says, for a little while. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. He's referring to the humanity of Christ. That in his humanity, in this humiliated position, Jesus was a little lower than the angels. And just think about in the New Testament, those moments where the angel would show up to man. What was the response of man? It was always terror, right? The first words out of the angel's mouth were what? Fear not. Fear not. Did Jesus have to say that when he approached people? See, his glory was veiled at this time. They weren't seeing him in his full and glorious self. So for a while, he was lower than the angels. He didn't terrify people. He was willingly being humiliated. Then there at the beginning of verse 8, it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That all things are now subject, subjugated to Christ. See, now we have a problem. Because the question that should be popping up in the mind of the reader was, well, wait a second. If Jesus is in control of all things, if everything is subjugated to Christ, then why is the world so screwed up? This is the problem of evil. And it's one of the biggest conundrums in the faith of Christianity. If there is a good God who's in control of all things, why do so many crummy things keep happening? Why is the world still screwed up? And in order to make sense out of what is going on, we have got to go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at verse 13, because there the writer of Hebrews is going to quote from another psalm, Psalm 110, and listen to this. It says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So notice what's happening here. God, this is, and this is a reference to Christ, this is a messianic psalm, talking to Christ, sit at my right hand, and then what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is, this is, referring, this is referring to the post-ascension time of Christ. He's crucified. He was risen again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But look, it's referring to something that's happening in the future. Well, which is it? Psalm 8, that he's already subjected and subjugated everything to Christ? Or is it in some future time that he's going to make his enemies a footstool under his feet. Now, this would be the question that any reader would have coming to the book of Hebrews or even going through those psalms. And the truth is, right now, you and I are stuck in this middle place, this time between the two comings of Jesus. He came once, and he's going to be coming again. And we're living between this already and the not yet. And this takes us to the remainder of verse 8 and verse 9. 
It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection, in subjection to him, but we see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now he's explicitly referring to Christ. <clears throat> Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might test, taste death for everyone. So now we are looking at a different program. Have all things been subjected to Christ already? Or is it sometime in the future? The answer is yes. <laughs> By the way, I paid a lot of money to go to seminary to get the answer to this. Oh, I wanted my money back when I was all done. At present, we don't see everything yet subject to him. And see, that's why we're stuck with all the problems, and frankly, we don't have all the answers. <clears throat> and think about the persecution that went on in the early church. They endured hor horrible things. You know, like I said in the beginning, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll see this long list of the tortures endured by those early Christians. What they went through for their faith. Don't you think maybe they were asking the question, and even in one verse, it graphically says that someone was being sawn in two. <clears throat> Christ, if you're in control of all things, why is this happening to me right now? That's a very, very good and natural question. <clears throat> we have this issue of timing. Like I said, we're living between these two comings of Christ. And Jesus often talked in this kind of strange language, referring to his kingdom. When the Pharisees asked him, well, when is this kingdom coming, Jesus, that you're talking about? He answered them this way in Luke 17. <clears throat> Excuse me, he said, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, what are you talking about? Christ is saying that by my presence being here, the kingdom of God is with you right now. I'm bringing heaven down to earth right here in front of your eyes. And then that started the church. And the church started. And guess what? We're getting a glimpse of kingdom living right now. <clears throat> Does it always feel like it? Probably not. The truth is there nonetheless. That this group that we're in right now, we're like this small colony of heaven. Did you know that here in this, in this room? Believers being together. This small piece of heaven. But we can't fully see the purposes of God in his kingdom. But Christ is in control of all things. I said John Sakinga practically preached my message right here this morning. Yeah, we do get disheartened by the things we see. And yet what? And yet God is in control. But we can't see it yet. This is the requirement of faith. We see this in the redemption of man. We see when people come to faith in Jesus. Sam said it this morning. I told you two people did. He said that God sees us as perfect. Well, wait a minute. I kicked the dog this morning. I yelled at the kids. I, I hollered at my wife. You're saying I'm perfect? 
when you go to the Word of God, when God looks down on us, He sees us as fully perfect. Now, why is that? How is that? Because we've trusted in Christ. That phrase, we are in Christ, means when He looks down on us, He sees the righteousness of His own Son. He doesn't see all that crummy stuff that you and I have done. It's in Christ, past, present, and future. The sins you will commit, the sins you've already committed, the one you may be committing right now, I don't know. It's in Christ. All of it. That phrase, uh, already and not yet. I want to illustrate a little bit further with a story about a, a young woman uh, named Josie. Josie Caven. And she lived in England. And when she was growing up, actually she was born deaf. And um, she received a cochlear implant it was during the Christmas season at the age of 12, and the very first sound she heard in her life was the song Jingle Bells playing on the radio. Now, at that moment, her hearing was 100% restored. She could hear everything going on. And they asked her mother, so she, she understands what she's hearing? And her mother said, no. Yeah, she's got her hearing back. It's 100% restored. But see, she's hearing all these sounds for the very first time. The first time she heard a door close, she had to stop and ask her mom, what was that? Was that a... She said, well, that was a door closing. She had, to, she had to interpret her name for the very first time it was ever spoken. She didn't know that was her name that was being said when it was spoken. She didn't know that the light in her room had a hum to it. She had to learn what all these sounds were like. So her hearing was restored, but every single day was a new adventure in understanding where the sound had come from. See, Christ is already in control, even in your own current suffering. But like that little girl, Christians have to learn to interpret the world with a new Christian worldview. When we see the worst of things happen... It's like that little girl interpreting a new sound. We don't fully understand the source. As a matter of fact, we're going to have to wait till we get to heaven before we fully understand what was going on. Even then, I believe it's going to take an eternity to unravel all the purposes and intentions of God. We won't get it till we're fully in His presence. Christ came to earth to be our example to show us how to suffer well during this short amount of time that we have on earth. And we take comfort in that, that Jesus shared in our sufferings. He walked through all the stuff that we, we go through, the pain of grief, the physical pain and the suffering. And at the same time, right now, he is ruling in heaven and in control of all things. Those two truths are the basis of our comfort. Now, I want to go into this question, well, then how do we endure this present suffering? How do we endure this present suffering? I want to get a bit more uh, practical here. And first of all, I want to suggest that we have to grapple with God's silence. We have to grapple with God's silence. Why, at times, does it seem that God has ignored the pleas of the persecuted, the beaten, all the people that have endured so much suffering for, for so many different reasons, sometimes directly because of their faith. 
Why has he remained silent? Why has he remained silent when you cried out for prayer for someone's healing? Why does he sometimes refuse to respond to desperate calls for help? See, this is something the Christian has to grapple with. And just this past week, I saw a Facebook post. Somebody says something like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish God would just sit down beside me and tell me what it is I'm supposed to do. I have been there. I remember my first job out of college. I was in sales. And I had another offer, and I sure didn't like what I was doing. And I was like, God, I sure wish that you would just maybe drop a little piece of paper from heaven or something. It's like, I don't know. Just tell me, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. It's frustrating. Uh, and we want things. Some of us want a new job. We want, we want a spouse. We want a boyfriend, whatever it, girlfriend, whatever it may be. God, why aren't you listening to me? I love this psalm from David. Crying out to God. Please listen to what David says in his own life. This is from Psalm 44, verses 23 to 26. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Can you hear the pain in that? Can you hear the frustration and the desperation of David crying out to God, God, why aren't you? Wake up, would you? There's a children's book came out, that came out called A Hole to Dig that I think can be helpful to us. And in that book, each page declares the purpose of something through a child's eyes. For example, when a child comes to a hole, they say, oh, look, this is something we can jump into. When a child sees a pile of leaves, they think, oh, look, this is something we can also jump into. Or a mud puddle, oh, this is something I can slide through. And that reasoning is sound. Kids tend to see things for their own sort of general entertainment. Um, but as an adult, when you read that book, you can look at it with a very different sort of set of eyes. Because the hole is something you better fill in quick or somebody's going to trip in it and they're going to sue you. You know, a pile of leaves is something that you've got to hurry up and get bagged up because the, the, you know, the folks are coming to pick it up. You know, a mud puddle is something that just gets your, your pants all jacked up. So adults tend to have this very unimaginative eye when it's turned to these things. And the same thing can be said of silence. We can very much see silence as something that needs to be filled But think about, just for a moment, there was a prophet named Elijah in the Old Testament. And uh, he was on Mount Horeb, and, and he'd been given this privilege. He was going to see the Lord pass by. And he was told, you're going to see the Lord pass by. He was being hunted down by people that wanted to kill him. So he's waiting, and then all of, the, all of a sudden things started happening. First, there was this great wind. As a matter of fact, the wind was so powerful that it, that it tore the mountain up. Then there was an earthquake, but God wasn't in that earthquake. Then there was a fire, but God was not in that fire. And then, and this is how they put it in the, this is the New Revised Standard, translates it this way. He came in the sound of sheer silence. 
a gentle whisper. You know, the church has got a long history of something called contemplative practice, where literally you are keeping yourself silent before God. Now, why is that? Because at times, knowledge of God comes in that silence. If you're grappling with that right now, be intentional. Think on God. Think on His truth. Trust that His presence is there with you, even though it doesn't feel like it. This silence is something to be grappled with. And then second, accept persecution as normal, at least for now. Accept persecution as normal. This is totally foreign to me. Even as I'm reading the words off the screen, it's, it seems like this far-off thing. Uh, American and Christians enjoy this right to the freedom of religion, but most of the world does not. According to one organization, this is called Aid to the Church in Need, currently there are 327 million Christians persecuted world, worldwide. That's greater than the population of the United States. Um, so it, it, it's happening everywhere. Uh, as a matter of fact, according to Open Doors USA, uh, some 245 million experience heavy persecution. And again, I know this is far off. And in America, we are free and we are protected. So shouldn't Christianity be budding and growing more quickly here than anywhere else? Well, the fact of the matter is, it's not. You know where Christianity is growing the fastest right now? It's in the country of Iran. I came across the story of a pastor named Tad Stewart. He took a church in Tehran, Iran, and he and his family were there during a revolution and a revolt and a riot just in the past, this has all been the past 10 years. The government under the Ayatollah shut down his church. This little struggling Presbyterian Church. They, they took a great big padlock, as a matter of fact. They put it right there in the front of the doors. Then they wiped their hands and said, Aha, this will kill Christianity in Iran. So he and his wife, they opened up their house, this little house on Sunday mornings for people to come and worship. They thought nobody's going to come. Nobody's dare going to defy the Ayatollah this way. But they did. They came early in the morning while it was still dark. The attendance started growing. At first it doubled, then it tripled. People started smuggling in Bibles like they were pure gold. And this pastor said that when he would open the Bible and read it, he said you could hear a pin drop. Faith broke out in that church. It spread in the community. It spread over the city of Tehran. It spread all over Iran. It's spreading to other parts of the Middle East. What is our big enemy here in the United States? I think it's apathy. It's just kind of a general sense of not caring. He goes on to say that it seems that a little suffering can do good for the life of the church. I want to continue on. That's a similar thought that goes into this next point. Look beyond the present. Look beyond the present. It's very easy to get disenchanted with, uh, with everything in our world, the people, even our faith sometimes, the church. And we can get stuck with the present because we have this present pain 
that we have to cope with. And we don't know why. That's really the, the harsh part of it. When the worst things happen, we're left with our hands up in the air. God, why is this so? And Americans, we tend to be more about relieving our pain than ever trying to discover the purpose of it. And that's why I love this quote. Uh, this is from one commentator named Guthrie. He says, We have become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. And worse, we assume that people who find God always feel better. And it's so often not the case. Are you willing to see God's purposes as primary and your pain as secondary? That's the thought, actually, I want to leave you with. Make God's purpose primary and your pain secondary. Understand that for the Christian, pain is never, ever, ever, ever purposeless. God is always working through it. And yes, even though he is already subjecting all things to himself, even though he has complete control over all the world, we don't see it yet. And we're left to trust that he is working things out. I want to close with this, this story that comes from a book called The Heavenly Man. Actually, uh, Ron Berglund introduced me to this book this past week. And it's the true story of a Chinese Christian named Brother Yoon. He's a severely persecuted uh, Christian man living in China. And in this book, he talks about a moment he had after speaking at an American church. So he spoke at an American church, and then someone in this moment comes up to him, and they say something like this. He said, once I spoke in the West, and a Christian told me, I've been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. This is what he says. He said, this is not what we pray. We never pray against our government or call down curses on them. Instead, we have learned that God is in control of both our own lives and the government we live under. He says that God has used the has used China's government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit. Instead of focusing our prayers against any political system, we pray that regardless of what happens to us, we will be pleasing to God. And then he goes a little bit further. He says, don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in, what, in a way that reflects his love and power. This is true freedom. So oftentimes, God can be most glorified in our darkest hour. Would you pray for that strong back to endure whatever suffering you're going through? Because you may most glorify God in that present pain than you ever could in the easiest of times. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we never truly know the scriptures until we are willing to be changed by them. And Father, I want to lift up those right now who are sitting in this auditorium in pain. 
and confusion and grief. And Lord, I pray that they would trust that even through that, even through the unspeakable pain, God, you are working. And Lord, I pray that we would keep your purposes primary, trusting, walking by faith and not by sight, that you're in charge, you're in control, and that we would have joy in that. And God, give us strong backs. Help us to endure for a little while longer, God, until you take us home to be with you or until you come back. We ask this all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.